the importance of frontline staff. 100%. Like the grocery store guy, the superintendent, the leasing agent, right? Frontline staff is critical. They need to be valued, trained, paid, and motivated. We could all improve, I think, on that. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we provide an insider's look into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we take a deep dive into the technologies and strategies that have helped companies overcome operational challenges and increase the value of their multifamily investments. So without further delay, let's get into today's discussion. Welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm Mitch Fanning with RentSync, formerly LWS. And joining me today is Derek Lobo, CEO and broker of record of CVN Rock Advisors, a real estate brokerage who specializes in the apartment and purpose-built rentals industry. Uh, Derek, how are you doing today? Mitch, fantastic to be here. I'm wound up, ready to go, man. Awesome, awesome stuff. So why don't we start off by you just telling us a little bit more about yourself and expanding on that intro and maybe how you got into the industry. You know, Mitch, um, my modus operandi for 35 years has sort of been the same, okay? I find a topic that not a lot of people are talking about, okay? Then I write a book on it, then I do seminars it, then I do a webinar on it, then I start consulting in it, and then I do brokerage in it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's a model I followed, and it actually started in 1986 when I wrote a book titled How to Take a Building to Rent Review, and it was a self-help guide for landlords. So I produced the book, then I started doing seminars on the topic, then I started doing consulting on the topic. Fair enough? Yep. So then, you know, fast forward another number of years, all of a sudden it was 1990, we elected the NDP, there was a recession, and vacancies started going up. So I did the same thing. I wrote a book on the topic titled How to Rent Apartments Fast, okay? And then I did some seminars on it across Canada and did dozens back then. This was before the internet, you know what I mean? You had to go out and talk to people, yeah, yeah. And and then I started doing consulting in it and then performance, then we started leasing up apartment buildings. And after that, you know, we saw new apartment construction needed to happen in Canada for many, many reasons, right? Beyond the scope of today. But so I'm currently writing 12 books on the topic of new apartment construction. It'll be a series of books like a box set. And I've done webinars which and seminars across Canada. And we do an annual conference every year. In fact, we used to do the, the conferences with RentSync together back in the day. That's right, yeah. Where we would do them back to back. You guys run the first day, we'd run the second day. And we'd share the cost of the stage. You know what I mean? Back yeah, when it was, I, uh, it was good to do those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Yeah, J- we'll and J- Jason Leonard did a, he had a, he had a real flair for setting up the stage, setting up the room. So it was, it was, it was a great collaboration. Yeah, I wish we still did it. But um, anyway, so, so it's always been kind of, you know, writing a book, um, seminars, consulting, and, 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 now, and now ultimately brokerage. So today, most of my time goes on new apartment construction where we do feasibility studies, we do consulting, and then we do the brokerage. And we sold, oh gosh, I think we've sold more than 20, out of the 40 most expensive sales in Canada, I think we've done 11. Wow. And, uh, but you know, it, everything starts with the consulting, the book and the speaking for us. That, that's, that's my MO. So whatever I do in the future, there'll be a book, there'll be a seminar, and then there'll be some activity around that. Okay. Note to self, I'll, uh, I'll follow that, uh, <laughs> that model. Now you mentioned 1986, you mentioned a lot, mentioned a lot of changes, uh, in the apartment industry. 
Um, now, you know, there's no question over the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot of change in the industry. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically around the adoption of, of technology, just to name one, uh, just to name one thing. Uh, and that's only really accelerated with the emergence of COVID. Now you've been in the industry for like 30 plus years. Yes. Uh, so in your view, uh, you mentioned a couple changes, uh, in your, in your intro, but in your view, what's been the biggest change? Well, you know, when I first started in the business, I was, I don't know, I think I was 28 years old. I had a full head of hair. You know what I mean? And I used to go to these apartment meetings where the people smoked. You actually smoked in the meeting. That's how long ago it was. Okay. And it was generally older guys that it was the apartment owner himself or his staff that came there. Nobody ever changed companies. You kind of wound up working for one guy. You went through the grind of things. You know what I mean? But I think the thing, so there's been a lot of change, but the one I've noticed the most is when I go to industry association meetings now, right? You go to a GTA meeting or a FERPO meeting or some of that. I think it's the, it's the number of people I see there that I don't recognize. Right. And the young people there, there's middle-aged people there, there's older people there. There's, the thing I love about this business is that it was kind of a mom and pop business when I started in the mid 80s. Now it's a sophisticated industry where people get career paths. So you can join. We've had a number of leasing agents who work for our company who are now vice presidents of companies. Right. So I think that's what I think is the most fascinating here that this industry that was backwards then has now, we've got a way to go still, but it now has become a professional path to be on. And to be in a professional in the apartment business, you can move around from company to company. The pension funds are now in the business. So, I mean, I think about even before when I do a proposal, my proposal was a little one-page thing I sent to the guy. All of a sudden, when a pension fund was like, I remember a guy called me saying, Derek, you can't send me a one-page proposal. We're a pension fund. So what's happened is as the industry has matured, it's dragged everybody with it, right? So, so when guys come in from other asset classes, they have certain expectations of the performance of their consultants, their brokers, their suppliers, right? The things that we are. And I think that we've all had to step up our game and that's a good thing. Not to foreshadow, but um, I do have a question around uh, the evolution of the career paths. I know in, in my, uh, in kind of on my, my queue here of questions, uh, but just changing uh, gears just for a second, you know, we, we obviously can't get out of this conversation without talking about COVID <clears throat> and, you know, in, in one of your recent videos, you mentioned it's it's the perfect storm to build apartments. Yeah. Uh, and, and that really intrigued me. Uh, so my question to you is, why, why do you think that? You know, when you think about all the asset classes, right? You've got retail, you've got hotels, office, apartments, industrial, right? Yep. Three of those are facing significant headwinds, okay? Industrial is doing pretty well, but apartments is the big scalable one. So I think that four reasons, okay, that apartments are going to be very successful in the future. So that's existing apartments plus new apartment construction. Number one is investor demand. What investors crave today is stability. Well, what's more stable than an apartment building, right? So apartments are stable. That's why the cap rates are so low, right? So number one, investor demand is, I think, going to get stronger in a more uncertain world, right? And no one's making a prediction about the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows. But apartments are the most stable asset class. They're also scalable. Everybody understood. I've never rented industrial space. You probably haven't either, but we've all lived in an apartment. So 
right? So my point is, it's an understandable business, right? It's it, 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 it's not a complicated business. The financing is good on it and so on. So number one, investor demand is there. Number two is renter demand is there. In Ontario, in Quebec, we've had rent controls for 30, 40 years. That has stymied the supply. So when you're building apartments, you're not building for future growth the way you build office and hotel. We're building for existing massive pent-up demand. So the renter is coming. And other than the downtown cores, which are suffering now because the office towers are shut down, the rest of the business is doing great. Okay? Uh, it, it really is. So if you think about the suburbs, the secondary tertiary markets, even the major cities, as long as you're not in that downtown office core in the CBD, you're doing, you know, you're doing very well. So the investors there, the renters there. The single largest cost for apartments is cost of capital. And interest rates are at historic lows. And I think the one thing we can all agree on is that interest rates probably have to stay low for the foreseeable future. So that means your biggest cost is on sale, cost of capital, right? And so investors are there, renters are there, money's there. And I think, I'm gonna guess that if this problem we have now continues, land costs are gonna get cheaper. And that's one of your one of your larger costs. Construction costs right now are way up because of demand, but that who knows what that's going to do. But so those four factors, I think, right, are what is going to drive new apartment demand. It's also going to drive demand for existing apartments, but there are only so many apartments. So right. what I say to people is, if there's a fixed pool of assets, why don't you just make the pie bigger instead <laughs> exactly. of over instead of keep paying and paying for the same fixed pool? Help make it bigger, and that that's really what our mission is. Our mandate is is to help developers uh, transition from their existing developments of their hotel, an office, a retail guy, whatever. They've got 90% of the skills that they need to start developing apartments. We will teach them that last 10%. That's, that, that's what our job is. And then so we'll do, the fee, you know, we'll do the feasibility, the consulting, the brokerage, the lease up, and things like that. So let's talk about making that, that pie bigger uh, and, and get a little bit more into the process of, of building and leasing up uh, these projects. Now, when a developer, uh, you know, hires your firm, uh, typically they start with doing a feasibility study. Yeah. You know, what questions are you, you trying to answer when you go into each one of these studies? So we're usually the first call a developer makes. Okay. Or we should be. Don't start spending a lot of money till till we've had a discussion. So what our feasibility study, and, and it's, a, it's a report, it's a detailed report, it's about an inch thick, and it's written for you, and then you give it to your lender. But I'm not writing it for your lender, I'm giving it to, I'm writing it for a developer to make more money. Then we'll give it to a lender once you've cleared up the vision a little bit to get his financing. So we answer five questions. Should you build? And you know, look, we've done so many, probably seven, 800 studies across Canada. We can tell you, uh, we can give you a red light and tell you that project's not going to pencil out right off the bat without just talking to you on the phone. It's a free quick no if your project isn't going to pencil out. Okay. We just, we've got a good sense as to what works. Okay. And you know, anyone who's been doing something for a long time can often, a guy buying cattle can look at a cow and go, that's a good cow. I can pay a lot for, or whatever the analogy is. We've just done enough of this to kind of know. Okay. Um, so should, if the answer is yes, you should build, then we go ahead and do a feasibility study and define that. Okay. So number one, should you build? The second one is, what should you build? Um, what's the unit mix? What's the unit size? And what are the amenities? Fair enough? Yep. Okay. Next, what's the depth of the market? So can I build 50 of these, 100 of these, or 500 of these? And in how long? So should you build? What should you build? How much can you charge? Okay. The fourth is how much can you charge? That's the number one thing you need to know. 
because $100 more in rent times 12 at a five cap, because remember that extra $100 all goes to your bottom line, Mitch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So $100 times 12 at a five cap equals $24,000. So if we can help you predict the rent, that's the most important number that goes into your formula, into your, into your pro forma document. So should you build? What should you build? How much can you charge? What's the depth of the market? And the fifth part is we do a pro forma for you on what the building is going to be worth when it's finished, the proposed building that we suggest. Fair enough? So typically a client comes to us with a piece of dirt and says, look, I can build 100,000 you know, square feet of apartments here. We're going to tell him whether he builds 200, 500 square foot apartments or whether he builds 52,000 square foot apartments. They both come to 100,000 or 101,000 square foot apartments. And that is all data driven by who we think is going to rent their, their age, their income, their habits, and things like that. So we design the apartments based on the demographics of the area or the demographics that that area is moving towards sometimes, right? So, but the most important thing is rent. Yeah, and that's a great overview. And, and obviously, you know, based on the last uh, question I had in terms of, uh, you know, it being the perfect storm to build, um, you know, should you build and, and, and maybe what to build, obviously that, that kind of covered off. But, you know, given the, given the current environment uh, and, and market conditions we're in, specifically when it comes to COVID, when it comes to new uh, construction or purpose-built rentals, uh, you know, at that des- design stage, how should developers approach determining uh, unit mixes and, and sizes, again, given sure. this current environment? Sure. That, that, that's a tough question to answer. Right. That's so, why I asked so, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the very first question we ask a developer is, are you building to keep or are you building to sell? So if you're building to keep a building, you're going to build one kind of building. Like you're not probably, if you're building to keep, you might put geothermal in, okay, yeah. for the future. But if you're building to sell, you may not recoup your money fast enough to put in geothermal. Right. And if you're building to keep, you've got a 20-year or 10-year, a long-term horizon right? But if you're building to sell, you don't have that time, you know, that the building's going to go up in value 5, 10, 15 years down the road. So if you're building, a bit, so, so, so in terms of sizes, let's just look at two extremes. If you're building in downtown Toronto, I'm going to build more one bedrooms and more smaller units. If I'm building in Oakville, one of the richest cities in Canada, I'm going to build larger units and more two bedrooms and some two bedrooms and dens because there I'm going after the, the empty nester homeowner, right? In downtown Toronto, I'm going after the, you know, the young person working downtown uh, with high income and they want, they want the lifestyle and so on. So it's very much driven by the demographics of your unit mix and your unit size. But younger people, more one bedrooms, smaller units, um, you know, um, older people, larger units, more two bedrooms in a nutshell. So do you think uh, because of COVID and, uh, you know, let's just talk at the top of the market, like class A's, um, do you feel like, you know, developers who are thinking about building a class A are thinking about changing up that unit, uh, unit, uh, mix uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little differently than they did maybe say a year ago. Yeah. You know, I think of COVID as almost being a fog, right? Like we just can't see ahead of us. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so during COVID, when this thing first started, like I said to myself, look, I don't know if I can make any long-term plans. I'm just going to, when it first started in March, I was literally taking day by day. We had no idea what was going to happen. And then I kind of went, went by week, went week by week. And now I'm kind of going maybe month by month. Right. So I'm thinking that, you know, 
sometimes the plan is to continue on with the plan up until clear advice comes in. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. We can't we can't three we can't see through COVID right now. We don't know what's happening on the other side. Okay. So I would say that I would still ask the question: Are you a seller or are you a long-term keeper? Yeah. That's what's going to guide most of my discussion. Okay. Now more you could ask the question: Should I build this as an affordable project? Okay. And we've got a group of people here that just study affordable housing. We do webinars on. So everything we did before, we've done. I don't have written the book yet, but you know. So <laughs> we'll do the, the seminars, the consulting, and then help developers go through the process. So the one thing I would say might they might look at it a little differently is look at affordable now. But quite frankly, Mitch, you should have been looking at it before anyways. It just becomes more flavor of the month. Exactly. To look at affordable right now, if that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes I, I, I say, you know, all COVID really did is forced us to do the things that we should have been doing all along. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. This situation has forced us to do what was inevitable and it's accelerated it, right? So, I mean, you know, I, I don't see a whole lot of good coming out of this, but that's one of them that, well, it's forced me out to use Zoom. <laughs> we, we, were, we were not in the online training business. We used to run this annual conference. We have now done, so we are, what, eight months into this? We have done probably 46 webinars, 35 of them have been paid webinars. Like, it's a whole business for us that got created, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an adjustment, man, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's been a, a pivot of a lot of people I've talked to that, that do uh, do some type of training uh, that was done, nor, you know, previous to this uh, physically, but have now uh, needed to, to switch to virtual. And, so, and it's probably 75, 80% as effective. Without all that massive effort of travel, setting up hotels for, you know, and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. So switching gears again, uh, you know, and kind of going down that list into uh, kind of the, the pricing side of things, you know, again, given the current situation uh, in, you know, looking at it through that lens, when it comes to, you know, the lease up side of things, you know, what, what's the best approach uh, in your mind or, or what you're, you're telling clients to, uh, when it comes to leasing up a new project, specifically around I, the pricing? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I would think about three things philosophically, okay? Number one, start early. Too many guys, three weeks before our certificate of documents go, hey, does anyone, you know, does anyone set up a web page? So start early. Number two, embrace technology. Okay, you have to embrace technology. All your apartments, the majority are going to get leased off the internet. And there's so many cool things you can do. We can't talk. You could do a whole show on this. And you guys know that. Business at RentSync better than we do by far. But so I would say start early, embrace technology. So that means bringing in new people. Because developers typically are, you know, they're, they're, they're probably in their 50s, the majority of them, right? 50s and 60s. So, you know, you need to have enough money earned to, you know, to become a developer. And then the third and the one that, no, that I think people pay attention to is pay attention to your frontline staff. They are the revenue generators. That person gets you $100 more in rent because they're a sophisticated salesperson. That's $24,000 you made in that unit. They do that a hundred times. You've added two point four million dollars to your bottom line because you have a because you have a highly trained, motivated, well dressed frontline closer. 
And so we opened up apartment leasing university this year. We put oh, a couple hundred people through it, right? And all we're doing is teaching frontline foundational sales techniques, but with an apartment flavor to it. With, and so what's really cool is talking about technology. One of the main things we do in training was role playing. Well, now in Zoom, you can go to breakout rooms and role play. Right. So it's amazing what we've been able to accomplish using technology. And I'd say personally, I'm probably a late adapter. I'm not an early adapter for sure. But, you know, you've got you've got to embrace you've got to embrace technology. And I think the one thing we've also learned during this time period is the importance of frontline staff, 100%. like the grocery store guy, the superintendent, the leasing agent. Right. Frontline staff is critical. They need to be valued, trained, paid and motivated. We could all improve, I think, on that. That's right? great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, you know, let's coming back to the uh, kind of the career side of things and and, and the apartment as a profession. Uh, I, I promise I'd come back to that. And and so, and you, you kind of reminded me when you, you talked about the frontline staff, um, you know, and this could be controversial. We talked about this during our prep call. You, you know, we, we talked about this. Um, but you had mentioned that the, the apartment profession, uh, or the apartment professional hasn't always been as sophisticated as say other professionals, yeah. uh, in the, in the real estate industry. Um, and, and one of the reasons, and I thought it was a great insight was that the owner or owners are get are, are evolving and becoming more demanding. Um, so, you know, why do you think that is in general? Why do you think that they, they weren't sophisticated and now yeah. they're becoming more sophisticated. Um, you know, really, really the answer is rent controls. Um, rent controls are a blight on the industry. Regulation is a problem for any industry, right? So the apartment industry is highly regulated. So when you have no new construction, growing population, your rents are capped, well, your customers line up for you. You don't need to have good customer service. You don't need to have good reporting. You don't need to have trained staff. You're an order taker. It's like the passport office. What's their motivation to give you great customer service? There's only one place you get a passport. It's a monopoly. So in a sense, rent controls created that. What politicians need to understand is true protection for the public comes from competition. What are you going to do? Force Ford, force Ford to build better cars? No, Toyota will make them build better cars. You see my point? Yeah. So what we've had is a sad mistake on thinking rent controls protect tenants. Rent controls hurt tenants. Um, rich people live in apartments and don't move. Fair enough? Or affluent people. They'd rather buy a cottage than give up their rent control apartment in uh, you know, downtown Ottawa or downtown Toronto or, down, or something like that, right? Yeah. So, so I think that the reason is, is that because we, the culprit you can go back to is rent controls. That created a regulated environment. Regulation does not create great customer service and it does not create competition. So, you know, it's Adam Smith 101, right? Yeah. Now, before we kind of, you know, move into uh, the last section that I call the quick fire round, and, and maybe this is kind of a, a, a dovetail off to the, the conversation around rent, rent controls, but um, you had talked to me a little bit about, you know, again, during our prep call, you know, there was, there was a, a great danger to our, our apartment industry. And, and I thought it was really interesting. And I want to maybe see if you could elaborate on that. So the question is, you know, what is the greatest danger uh, to the apartment industry in your mind moving forward? You know, anyone who becomes an apartment developer or an apartment owner is an entrepreneur. 
he or she or the family or the, is prepared to take risk, right? So you get rewarded for your risk or you get punished for your risk. We're prepared to do that because we've chosen to go into business. You guys are business guys. You're prepared to go into the business of serving the industry, right? Yeah. I'm prepared to do that. What I think is the greatest danger is regulation because now you add a wild card, right? So look, you can't blame anyone for COVID. It's life. It just happens. Sure. But how you react to COVID is a big problem. So the government has spent a ton of money, some of it wasted. That's going to cause a problem, right? So I'm not saying the free market always takes care of things, but you know, you needed to help people on employment insurance, some amount of CERB, but every 17 year old shouldn't have gotten CERB. Okay. It, it, was, it, it, was, it was a giant waste of money. It's, you know, and so on. So yeah, regulation is the, I think the greatest danger to our industry and because the industry is already regulated, it's easy to make a change. It's not like you're bringing a new piece of legislation. You're just adjusting the existing piece. For example, the rent freeze that Ford has done for 2021, right? Um, first of all, why would you call it so early? He called it, you know, in the middle of the summer. Maybe COVID would have been solved by then, right? Um, and then, for example, so why are you freezing the rents on people who are paying way below the market anyways in all rent control departments? So why are you doing that? That doesn't help anybody, right? So I think regulation is my biggest concern. I think for any industry, uh, you're prepared to face what happens in the marketplace. You're prepared for whatever, you know, black swan events, whatever, that's just life. But when legislation comes down on you that's purposely designed to do something, it often does the opposite. So it, rent controls create a shortage. Yeah, definitely no, no easy answers to, to that one. Um, I guess, you know, the only thing I'll say is we'll we'll move into something a bit more later, like the uh, quick, the quick fire round. Um, so, uh, Derek, the quick fire round. Uh, uh, since you're new to it, is you know I'll I'll say a statement and you'll have about sixty to ninety seconds to answer. Uh, Derek, are you ready? I'm ready, man. All right, here we go. So, first question: What are your thoughts on virtual leasing? I think virtual leasing, it, it, it comes to what I said about technology, right? Like you've got to embrace technology. Virtual leasing is like, it's like when everyone's out of town, that's the way you lease, right? So during the COVID shutdown, I said, just imagine everyone's from out of town, lease to them that way. But as things return to normal, I think virtual leasing is a new part of the rental process. People still want to see their apartments. They still want to come in and, you know, you know, look at things. But I think virtual leasing is here to stay and it's part of the process of renting apartments and it wasn't before even when we come out of this this shutdown period absolutely agree given covid uh what have you uh changed your mind about lately you know i never i always thought that all regulation was bad okay like i think it should be like texas where you build anything anywhere but you know when you look at the way toronto has evolved into this major dynamic world-class city with you know good transit not great but good transit um you know mixed neighborhoods restaurants offices apartment buildings so i think i've, I've come to kind of just realize the value of urban planning and it's not just about the developer and cramming as much as you can on every site there is something about placemaking creating communities creating 24-hour cities and so on. We've all been to U.S. cities that hollow out at night, right? And, you know, you go to downtown, maybe Houston or Albuquerque or wherever. They just, the office empties in Toronto. This, sometimes the traffic jams are as much in the evening as they are during the day. And so I think I would, I've come to appreciate 
um, to some extent, municipal politicians who have had maybe a, a really long vision as to how the city will evolve and that diversified neighborhoods, placemaking and so on has all been, has all worked, has all worked. It's probably frustrating for developers to go through, right? But I think at the end of the day, we've got some pretty good looking cities and some pretty functioning cities, you know, to make it work. It's interesting. Uh, you know, as you're saying that, I'm almost envisioning that the the urban planners almost have to reimagine what the cities are going to look like given the migration. And I know that's a short-term thing, but in yeah. a way, they've almost have to create uh, a different uh, different appeal to the urban life uh, and, and something that it wasn't uh, before to maybe entice some of the people who, who maybe, for whatever reason, uh, decided to move uh, away uh, almost entice those people to to in the future to to stay so it's a uh, definitely interesting for sure yeah you know my, my, my gut feel is that we are creatures of habit um, I want to start going to restaurants again I want to start visiting my clients again I want to start flying again I want to start taking vacations again I want to see Bruce Springsteen again you know what I mean and so I think I am going to, in all likelihood, as we get through this, I'm returning to the life I had, but with more Zoom in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. So um, number four, uh, what's the most misunderstood thing about you? Um, that's, a good, that's not a great question. Um, I think uh, because I am the front man for our company, right, I think that, People don't, people don't realize, I have 20 talented people behind me, right? And I'm just the front man. So there are people that are just really great workers in the vineyard who are, who are smart and who can like make a spreadsheet sing. You know what I mean? And, and I've got guys that can make GIS maps that are incredible, right? And, and, and they've got other people who are tenacious and see a real estate deal too. So I guess it's, I'm the front man and uh, a lot of people behind me with, real specialty yeah. and that's what I think makes a team is you need a couple of generalists I'm the generalist right but it's people with real real skill to do something I go how did you do that right and then you take three or four of those people together the unique ability and you put that together and that's how you get a 200 million dollar deal done one guy doesn't get a 200 million dollar deal done a team of experts get across the goal line one guy's kind of the face of it sure right because you need a face, but that's that, that's what I'd say is misunderstood about. Maybe he's misunderstood about me. Smarter than I look, <laughs> or not as smart as I look. Not yeah. as smart. Well, I mean, I, I agree with the uh, the the team dynamics uh, for sure. So uh, I guess uh, my last question would be, uh, Derek, where can people find you on the interweb? Uh, well, you know, I, I think just just the number one source of traffic to our website is my name. So people just Google Derek Lobo. That's like, that's the number one way people, that's why you kind of, it's that front man idea, right? But I would say that certainly just svnrock.ca, but you know, go to YouTube. I've, I've probably got, I don't know, 50, 50 videos up on YouTube. We've got a, we've got a channel there and we, we are happy to, I always say to people, if you attend one of our webinars, I hope it's like drinking from the fire hose. Like we're just gonna give what we know, right? And that makes you a better client for us. If you're not a client for us, then that, that's okay too. You've learned something, right? But so I think that would be the best way. Just, just Google my name, go to our webpage, svnrock.ca, or just go to YouTube and put in, you know, put in my name and there'll be a lot of content there. Okay, well, put those all in the show notes as well. 
Uh, well, that's it for another episode. Uh, Derek, thanks so much for doing this, man. It's, it was, it's been a pleasure. No, no, pleasure has been mine. Good luck with everything and all the best for, uh, for 2021. Okay. Well, okay. Um, until next time, keep swimming. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rentsync.com slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in this show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. That's this week's episode of Sink or Swim. Don't forget to join us next time for another jam-packed episode. Thanks for listening.